And so now we're going to have the reading. And our reading today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to verse 10. One Peter two, four to ten. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And? A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Amen. Well, now it comes to the time we're going to have listen to how that, that what that passage of 1, 1 Peter means to us as, as a people and as a church. And to do that, we're going over to East Burkholt, where Terry's eager to tell us more about that passage. So, brother, it's over to you, Terry. Hi, what's happening? I learned a new word this past month. Perhaps, what's happening? Well, what's happening is that we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 and for verses 4 to 10. And let's get straight into this. Peter says in the passage, welcome to the living stone or come to the living stone. And I don't usually think about uh, stones as, as living objects. They're inanimate. And, but Cole has put the title rightly of this message. We are living bricks, which is an accurate metaphor with bricks, you can build a dwelling. You can build a shelter. You can build a house. And when I think about uh, the Apostle Peter using the term about Jesus being our cornerstone and us being the, the bricks around that, I, I think of uh, sort of a human building where we're lined up and then suddenly we have people on our shoulders and then people on their shoulders. And, and that's the sort of metaphor that we've got here. Because living bricks is a bit of a contradiction. We don't usually think of bricks as living, uh, not in the way that plants or animals or humans are living. Bricks are an object um, and they're dead. But then Jesus too was crucified. He was dead. He was killed. He was put in a tomb, but he was resurrected to new life. He became the living stone. And God is often referred to in the Old Testament as our rock. I love that metaphor. I think about the rocks 
are on the seashore, the, you know, the large rocks and the pounding of the sea that, that really doesn't move the rocks. So um, why is the Apostle Peter talking about living bricks and our identity as a people who follow Christ? Well, to set the backdrop on this, at the end of the first century, the letter of First Peter was addressed to Jewish and Gentile Christians. They were living in a shattered world that was held together by Pax Romana. And they were, there was the military might of the Roman Empire that was controlling, in a way, kind of, you could think of uh, what was Yugoslavia and the dictator Tito holding the different states together. And the Romans ruled through power, through coercion. They were intimidating kings. They were crushing insurgent opposition. They were just like a battle force, a tank. And when a tribute king, like a vassal king who was paid money to run a state on behalf of the Roman Empire, uh, like Judah had a vassal king at the time, they thought they could throw off uh, the Roman yoke. And the Romans quashed any resistance. And so at the, towards the end of the first century, we see the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And this was, this was huge. Uh, all this persecution was going on. But the very place where the Jewish people and the Jewish Christians encountered God was destroyed without a temple. Jews and Christians were thrown into crisis and they were disorientated, they were lost. And it was almost impossible to, for us to understand, but actually we can understand it as we live through the pandemic of the coronavirus. Um, many of us are aware we haven't been into Colchester Baptist Church Yard Lane since March this year, over three months. And uh, many of us, this is the first time ever that we've not been part of the communal worship of seeing people face to face of um, praising God together and glorifying God together and there's a real sense of bereftness that we can't do that but it's a bit more than that it's as though in Roman times destroying the temple it's a bit like Colchester Borough Council just um, usurping and taking over our church in Eld Lane and claiming it as theirs and ruining it. So the temple was the place of God's presence among his covenant people and they would make daily sacrifices. The temple was the place where all the Jewish people everywhere both in Palestine and the diaspora had access to God. It was a very holy place and so with the destruction of the temple you can imagine it, it was really taking the floor from underneath the feet of these early Christians as well as Jews. The Sanhedrin was suspended, sacrifices were terminated, temple feasts had ended, the lamb was confiscated. And in the aftermath of all of these tremendous losses under the leadership of the Jewish rabbis, the center of Jewish identity and practice shifted. The whole idea of how we get right with God, how I atone for my sin, how I sacrifice to do that was taken from me. 
and without a place of animal sacrifice, the rabbis taught that acts of compassion would now atone for sacrifice. You had this shift. And about our identity uh, for the Jews, the rabbis emphasized obedience to God's commandments and statutes. And uh, so circumcision, dietary laws became symbols of Jewish identity. And we read in Acts of the Apostles, like chapter 15, the whole discernment process that the Jewish Christian church was going through as it embraced non-Jews into the faith. So you had the atonement for sin, about our identity, and then you had this whole understanding of, well, God was in the temple. That's where we met with God. And so the Jewish rabbis argued that God dwelled with those who studied the Torah, his word. So Christians, both Jew and Gentile, faced the same crisis and disorientation as the rabbis, as the persecution of the early church really gathered momentum. Indeed, it really felt for the church that the end of the world was very near. And Peter is addressing these questions of atonement, of identity, of obedience and the presence of God. And, and 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 to 5 give us a stunning um, perspective. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You, my friends, are a royal priesthood, are a holy people, offering your spiritual sacrifices to God. We who were not a people have become a people. So Jesus, in this passage, is the benchmark. He is the, the, the test for us about how God the Father reacts. And so the, the decision and the thing we have to weigh up in our discernment of are we people of faith or not, is Jesus the God-man or is he the deluded man? And I know for us in Colchester Baptist Church, we, we understand God through Jesus Christ and his narrative, his coming to humanity. Verse 7, now to you who believe, this um, stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the pinnacle stone, a stone that causes people to stumble and fall. So the resurrected Lord Jesus is a comfort to us. Um, in the podcast that I've been doing, uh, interviewing the talk with TT, uh, it's been just wonderful listening to People in our church talk about just the deep assurance of having the living Christ in their lives and the comfort that he brings when we go through the sunshine and through the shades of life. Jesus is the word of God. He is the message of God, the message of love of the creator of this vast universe. And so for me, 
and for you, Jesus defines our identity. He is our ultimate I. In other words, Jesus makes sense of who we are. We are not what our degrees have given us. We are not our status in our work titles or where we grew up or what language we speak or what color skin we have or what income we derive, what number of children we have. Our identity as is in the sons and daughters of the living God through Jesus Christ. So let's read uh, this chorus of identity. And it, I would just really encourage you to type this out, put it on some paper and stick it on your bathroom mirror, put it somewhere where you're sitting down having uh, breakfast or dinner. And here's what God says to us today. You are a chosen people. Yes, he calls you who are near and he calls you who are far away. He calls people from the four continents of the world. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, this wonderful verse, he says, friends, fear not, for I have summoned you by name. I was talking to Pat Harper this week, and we were talking about the welcome team and just the importance and Alex uh, leads our welcome team and, uh, you know, just the blessing people have where you give your name and your and Mike Baker um, when he gives the welcome and uh, declaring a welcome by naming people. It's a real blessing and that's a gift uh, that we have. I remember school games. Do you remember those when you were lined up and there were two captains and you had to be chosen? And you may want to be chosen by one team. And the last thing was you didn't want to be chosen last of all. And uh, Jesus chooses us. He chooses you. He chooses me. And God not only chooses you, he beckons you. If you don't know him today, he's, he's calling you to himself. He's inviting you to come and meet with him. We're a chosen people. Secondly, we're a royal priesthood. We no longer need a human priest to intercede with us. That's one of the defining understandings of our Christian theology through God's word, that Jesus now is our high priest. He is the one who intercedes between God the Father and us. He is the Son of God. And of course, we need ministers and clergy and leaders, but none of us ministers are any different to the rest of the congregation, but we have a calling, a specific calling. All of us have a calling as the royal priesthood of God. We're a, a new spiritual priesthood. The, the word here is oikos, which is the household of God. We're a spiritual house. And this is going back to the stones and the bricks, that the building maybe a place that's special to us because it's where we've encountered God through the years. But we're discovering through COVID-19 that God meets us wherever we are. His Holy Spirit is with us. We're a spiritual household. The building is not the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of people uh, who are the bricks of God. 
And then thirdly, he gives us another shout out of identity. So we're a chosen people, we're a royal priesthood, we are a holy nation. Now that doesn't mean to say, oh, we're, we're kind of better than the rest. That's not really what this is saying. What it's saying is if you're being persecuted, if you're being cast out, and friends, there are over 75 million Christians across the world today who are being persecuted, whether it's in West Africa, Southeast Asia, East Asia, um, and it may even be in parts of uh, Europe too, that if you're being disowned, if you're being disenfranchised, the Apostle Peter is reminding us that we are a special called people, a spiritual house, a nation, an agios, a holy nation belonging to God. And his hand is on us. Whether we live or die, his hand is on us and our destiny is secure with him. Amen. Fourthly, we are a people who belong to God. We're his possession. We don't belong to ourselves. We take responsibility for ourselves. But we were bought at a high price. The Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, died on a cross for us. Died, God died on a cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so the death and resurrection of Christ. So we belong, and I, our men belong to Christ the King. I'm so glad I belong to him because otherwise I'd probably be a vagrant wandering the world anchorless, rudderless, but I belong to him. So we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And then fifthly, we're called out of darkness into his wonderful light. I love the light. I, I, just, I just love it when it's bright and sunshine. I'm definitely born for the Mediterranean, so this weather suits me. And um, this new nation lives in the new light. And it's actually not talking about the sunshine. This is talking about the light of Christ, his light that shines on us. It does expose our flaws, but it also shines a light in the way forward. Your word, says Psalm 119, is a lamp to my feet. And he gives us enough light to walk forward. So my friends, that's the chorus of identity that uh, Peter gives to us in this text. I want to move on and sort of uh, finish with really three thoughts around this, this important text, because um, Jesus really um, is, is the, the summit of our lives. There was a wonderful uh, late 20th century uh, Christian man from the US called John Wimber. John Wimber was an extraordinary Christian pastor. He founded the Vineyard Fellowship uh, movement of Christian congregations that are vast across the, the world. And uh, he was one who discovered God mid midlife and uh, just the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, he had a, um, a, this, this experience of God's Spirit had a deep impact on the life of the churches, even in the United Kingdom. He wrote a series of books called Power Evangelism, Power Healing and Ministering 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the thing I want us to be challenged with is, is something that he gave to us, which reflects this text, that we as followers of Christ need to be converted in heart and mind in three ways. So the first is, and this is obviously the simplest and you know this, but we need to be converted to Jesus Christ. We need to be transformed. He needs to be Lord, King and Saviour of our lives. Philippians chapter 2 speaks about how we do that. And there's that symbol that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, shall bend. And we have seen that on the sporting field in the last few weeks where sportsmen, footballers have knelt. Well, friends, when we come to the end of human history in this era, everyone will bow the knee, whether they want to or not, because Jesus Christ will be recognized as the King of Kings, as the Son of God, as part of the Lordship of the universe. Friends, do you know Jesus Christ for yourself? I don't want you to have um, a faith that's, that's a borrowed faith, a secondhand faith, where it's because your parents or your siblings have faith. So you're kind of living, living on, the, on the sort of legacy, on the reins of that. It needs to be your faith. We give thanks to God for our parents or our siblings or our friends who have had faith and we can, we can be strengthened by that. And that's good and that's healthy. But this faith needs to be something owned for ourselves. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus says, To all who believed him, he gave the right to become children of God. You're not automatically born into the family of faith. We need to make that decision for ourselves to follow Christ, to make him king, lord and friend. Secondly, we need to be converted to the church. Well, um, there are some who are converted to the church without knowing Jesus. There are some in our churches across the UK who will go to church because that's the cultural norm of life. Now we're, we're fast, fastly moving away from that norm because people are saying, well, I, I'm not part of that Christian subculture. And so they follow what we call churchianity. But well, it's the dumb thing. It's the kind of middle class thing to do. And that's not Christianity. We need to be converted to Christ. And then we need to be converted to the church. We need to know Christ and learn the value of serving and worshipping at the local church. And church is the people of God. It's the spiritual community of Christ. And the church, with all of its flaws, is God's idea. There is no plan B. The church is God's plan A. And the great uh, Christian missionary who's part of the um, churches of South India, Leslie Newbegin. He says this about the local church. I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact 
on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe in the crucified and risen Lord. I am, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles and Christian literature, conferences. But I'm saying that these are all secondary, that they have the power to accomplish their purpose only as they're rooted in and lead back to the believing community. This is actually quite profound. What, what Leslie Newbegin is saying echoes with what the Apostle Paul is saying. There is something quite unique in the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something of itself without doing anything that is powerful and transformative. And so we need to be committed to the local congregation because God is committed to it. He gave his son. Third and final conversion is the conversion to the mission of God. Conversion to Christ, conversion to the church, and then conversion to God's mission. Uh, in Christian theology, they talk about the missio deo, the mission of God. And the good news, friends, it's not just down to us. God's already out there by the Holy Spirit. He goes ahead of us. He's working beyond the church. He's working in the world, in the workplaces, in the schools, in the communities, in the neighborhoods. He's out there. And our responsibility is to make his mission our priority. What's our part in God's mission? What has he laid on our heart? And so one of the things that he's laid on my heart is that as 21st century Christians, uh, that we work against people trafficking, Monday slavery, that that's a priority in the heart of God. That's an abomination to God. And, it, uh, and we need to embrace the justice of God to being part of the modern answer to the 40 million slaves in the world today. In Isaiah chapter 61, um, a text that Cole has brought to us about our vision as a church. Um, and it's, it's repeated in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And I'm going to read it to you because this is what it means to be part of the mission of God. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so you get the idea that we are people of good news, not bad news. We're good news to the poor. We're about freedom for captives. We're about recovery of sight, of bringing healing to those who are unwell mentally, psychologically, as well as physically. 
were about the release of the oppressed and the year of the Lord's favour. That wonderful song of blessing, the UK blessing, that verse resonates with me when they sing, God is for you. He's for us. He's not against us. And we need to hold on to that in these times. And finally, finally, my friends, let's turn to verse um, 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2 and see what he's got to say here. So you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now that's the New International Version, and I'm uh, an NIV fan. Um, and so one of our um, responsibilities, probably our chief outcome of being a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, um, is that we declare the praises of him. That's our primary role. Now, this translation actually, in my view, is rather lacking. Let me read to you from the New Revised Standard Version, and you might get where I'm coming from. So this is how it translates that piece about declaring the praises. It says that you may declare the excellences of him who called you out of darkness to his light, who were not a people and became a people. Wow, isn't that lovely? What excellences are we declaring about God in our lives week by week? How are we demonstrating the power and the excellence of God? Friends, what excellences have you been declaring through your words, your actions, your service, your songs, your prayers to the mighty God who has called us? God's people in this season, uh, when we referred to Isaiah 43, they were held in captivity in Babylon. But he said, fear not, for I have summoned you. I call you by name. And again, we have it here in Peter's letter. He reminds us, friends, even in the plight of COVID-19, even as we see the persecution of Christians, even as we have all the uncertainty of our economic and political environment, as we've got Brexit looming, as we've got um, so many things going on with drastic uncertainties and threats of life today, we have one above the sun who is excellent in all he does for us. We are a people who are no people. I want to close with this story because I think this is really what Peter is saying. It's based on a true story um, that uh, is just over 20 years old, um, a story of the Columbine High School in Colorado and the tragic and evil shooting that went on in that school. But there's a point that I want to bring to us. In 1998, two boys with guns entered the school and killed 13 children. Eight of them were committed Christians, 
and were deliberately targeted by the murderers. One of them was Cassie Burnell, a 17-year-old with long blonde hair. She wanted to cut her hair to make wigs for cancer patients. She'd become a Christian two years earlier, radically converted after dabbling in the occult. She was described as a light for Christ in the school and carried her Bible everywhere. On the terrible day, she was reading the Bible in the school library. One of the killers pointed his gun at her and said, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe, she replied. Why? And the gunman shot her before she gave her answer. Her classmate, Mickey Kane, told Larry King on CNN, she completely stood up for God. The night she was murdered, Cassie's brother, Chris, found a poem she had written just two days before her death. In it was this line. Whatever it takes, I will be the one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. Whatever it takes, I will be the one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. Peter reminds us we are a people of God that we're not a people because of the mercy of God. And our task today, friends, is to be faithful to declare his excellencies throughout our lives, no matter what it takes. Like Cassie, we may not face that threat, and I pray we don't, but we need to be found faithful in the small things of life, as well as the most dangerous places of life. May God bless you.